History Notes. Welcome to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. History Notes reports on the people, places, monuments, and events that have shaped our society. Sometimes we examine what has occurred long ago, and at times we look at history happening now. Grab a pad, a pen, or a digital device and get engaged with History Notes. Welcome to History Notes. I'm your host, Roddy Dawson, Curator of Education at the Greensboro History Museum. And today we are joined by someone that's going to help give us a better understanding of uh, a prominent uh, figure in the history of Greensboro, the Gate City. And uh, she's embarking upon a, a book that should come out in 2021. And it's none other than Professor Virginia Summy. She's received her BA in political science and history from Catawba College and a MA in history and a post baccalaureate in women and gender studies from the University of Montana. And most recently, she received her PhD in U.S. history and post-baccalaureate in African-American and African-American Dispersal Studies from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. So a product of our very own UNCG. Her research areas include political and legal history, the U.S. South, North Carolina, African-American history, and women's history. And uh, as mentioned before, completing a bio on Judge L. Rita Alexander will be coming uh, in 2021. And so we're pleased to have uh, doc, uh, Dr. Sumi join us here on History Notes today and talk about the life and the uh, forthcoming book of uh, Judge L. Rita Alexander Ralston. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. And, uh, you know, what immediately jumped out, we, we've done a, uh, we've talked before. Mm -hmm. uh, you even had me speak to your class. You do teach a class over at UNCG. What's the name of the class? It it is called Greensboro, the World Through a City. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be a faculty fellow in the Lloyd International Honors College at UNCG. So uh, this is a class that Dean Omar Ali and I developed together a few years ago. So I've taught it every fall for the past few years. And basically what we do is take a look at the history of Greensboro and how global developments have affected Greensboro's history and vice versa. And it's a, a freshman seminar, but uh, it's been uh, it's been a joy to teach over the past few years. And we're working on an accompanying text to go with it. All right, now, are you the only school offering this class in the area? I, yes, I mean, as far as I know, it was something that Dr. Ali and I kind of came up with together. So well, you know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because when I finally uh, find the time to do so, I wanted to create a similar class, uh, but with a more specific or more emphasis on African-American history in the Gate City in Greensboro. So one of these days when I when I finish uh, my schooling myself and I can slow down a little bit, I'll do that myself and I have to reach out to you for some tips. Yeah. Oh, yeah. we started with prehistory and go all the way to go all the way to, you know, current events. Well, good, news, good news. And you seem like you have a great group, a very enthusiastic group from my uh, one time dealing with them earlier this year. But uh, let me ask you this. How did you come to write about Judge Elrita Alexander? The first time I wrote anything about her was in my master's program at the University of Montana. So I'm a native North Carolinian but I uh, had some wanderlust after college <laughs> and ended up in Montana and got my master's degree out there. And so I was in this wonderful course by, taught by my mentor, Dr. Anya Jabor, and it was called Writing Women's Lives. And so I wanted to write about a woman from North Carolina. And being a native North Carolinian, I 
thought about different names and I was also thinking, okay, this is something that could be my master's thesis as well. Mm -hmm. And I think I was on the state history website, the state museum, the state history museum website. And I saw something about, you know, Elrita Alexander becomes first district court judge or something like that. And being a native of the area, I was like, who is that? And just kept digging and digging and uh, wrote that paper for the class. And it ended up being my master's thesis and my, <laughs> and my uh, doctoral dissertation. So um, interesting it how just, things come about. Yeah. <laughs> and and it it's just really, go ahead. No, it just really snowballed. Um, at first, it was a concern that I wasn't going to be able to find enough and then ended up finding a lot. Right. So uh, I'm curious, you know, because I, I mentioned as we started, one of the things that jumped out to me was the state of Montana. Uh, yeah, so right. How was it living in Montana? I loved it. I went out there for a one-year position with um, AmeriCorps Vista. It was really just, I was 22 years old. I had always lived in North Carolina my whole life. Um, my family uh, is originally from uh, Rutherford County. So I had always been, you know, in North Carolina. And so I said, you know, I'm going to apply for programs in states I've never been to before. Okay. <laughs> and, and ended up in Montana loved it i'm a mountain girl so it was it, it was a good fit <laughs> that's good to hear uh, now tell us a little bit more about for those that don't know uh about and should we say is it judge l rita alexander ralston or what's the common way what's the i when she died she was Ale alexander ralston okay um throughout most of her career she was judge l rita melton alexander okay um and so in the book throughout most of the book until the the end I use her name as she used it at the time okay. so throughout most of the book she's just Elrita Judge Elrita Alexander understood so what was her upbringing like where did she come from was there any clue in her upbringing that would guide her life towards law not entirely uh, she grew up, uh, she was born in Smithfield, so just about maybe, um, I don't know, 30 miles southeast of Raleigh. Mm -hmm. uh, her father was a Baptist minister who was a graduate of Shaw, and her mother was a teacher. And so they were very much a part of the, you know, the Black middle class. Mm -hmm. She was very much steeped in the politics of respectability um, the idea of uh, racial uplift, socially responsible individualism, all of these things. Um, education was very uh, enforced, especially by her father. And so they moved to Greensboro when she was 12. And so she went to Dudley. She went to North Carolina A&T. And it was at A&T where she met her first husband, mm -hmm. uh, Tony Alexander. It wasn't a law wasn't initially on her radar screen she kind of assumed that like most african-american educated women of her time that she was going to go be a teacher and she did do that for a couple years and then she worked on or she volunteered on a city council race here in greensboro um, a reverend sharp who subsequently lost mm. 
and but told her you would make a really good attorney and gave her a copy of Blackstone's commentary of the law. And that got her going. And she said, well, I'm going to go to law school. Um, her father initially thought she was a little nuts, said, mm-hmm. why don't you just go go to A&T, get your master's in education. And uh, she was determined. She's like, no, I'm going to go to law school. You know, um, as you're telling that story, I'm thinking about, I'm working on a documentary about um, uh, Dr. Simpkins Jr., Dr. George mm-hmm. Simpkins Jr., comes from a similar background as far mm-hmm. as, you know, middle-class family, educated, uh, and then also spent some time and, and done some interviews with Justice Henry Fry. Mm-hmm. And it's also very similar. Um, they were kind of urged into either becoming a teacher or, uh, in the case of Justice Fry, a teacher or a minister. As a matter of fact, his mom was a little disappointed that he mm-hmm. didn't become a minister and he went into to law. Uh, and then Dr. Simpkins, his dad was a dentist too. So it was kind of predetermined for him or a great influence. And so when you say that about uh, Judge uh, Elrita Alexander uh, Ralston, it is, I see all those favorabilities, those commonalities. And, but there's still, even with that, it lends to the point there wasn't a plethora of African-American law students in the nation. Uh, why was this the case for that time, in your opinion? Uh, racism? <laughs> Um, at the time that uh, Judge Alexander went to law school um, North Carolina Central which at the time was named North Carolina College for Negroes I believe I believe you're correct um, had just started its law school Uh, Chapel Hill was whites only Um, Duke you know I'm not sure when Duke's law school was established but you know whites only and so Part of the condition of her going to law school was that her husband said, her husband was a native New Yorker and said, well, if you're going to go to law school, go to New York and live with my mother. Mm. And so that's how she came about Columbia. Um, Columbia had been um, integrated, I believe, and I, they had accepted their first black man in the late 19th century. Okay. But they had never accepted a black woman before. So she goes and ends up being the first black woman accepted at, at Columbia law. And this was in 1943. Yes. 1943. Part of that, I think part of her acceptance was uh, Columbia had implemented an accelerated wartime program Mm -hmm. where you went straight through the year without summer breaks. It was originally designed to get men their law degrees quickly so they could go to war. However, women overwhelmingly took advantage of it. Uh, So at the same time that she was at Columbia, uh, Bella Abzug was at Columbia, Constance Baker Motley was there shortly after. Um, She graduated- African-American women or women? Uh, Bella Abzug was a a woman, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, Bella Abzug, was a representative from New York. Constance Baker Motley was um, a pioneer, also a pioneering um, black female judge okay. up north. And so I think the statistic was her class ended up being 43% women mm. because the lack of men opened up so many opportunities for women to go to law school. All right. And, and she certainly took advantage of that. Yeah. Um, and so, but while she was in Columbia, did that was this her first foray to go up north, or has she been exposed to different 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 regions beforehand? 
Um, I'm not sure about her personal travels mm-hmm. before that point, but it was her first time living up north. Okay. It was her first extended time uh, in the north, definitely. Okay. And so she, she warms up to education and graduates in 1945 uh, from Columbia Law School and becomes a trial attorney at that point? She um, initially, she passes the New York bar before she passes the North Carolina bar. Um, Southern state bars were notoriously difficult for African-Americans to to be able to take, let alone pass. So it was much easier for her to take the New York bar. Uh, She did take that and her first job was with a firm called uh, Dreyer and Stevens in Harlem. And so she was, she was working in Harlem for a couple of years before she was accepted to the North Carolina bar in 1947. Um, so it, one thing is, you know, why didn't she just stay in Harlem? Mm-hmm. Um, but she was very, very close to her family. At that point, her husband was a surgeon at L. Richardson, the uh, segregated hospital here in Greensboro. And so it made sense for her to come back, but the North Carolina bar, said that she had to be, quote, exceptionally meritorious mm. to be able to just even take the bar. And so it ended up being kind of a long story, but eventually she was able to take the North Carolina bar, passed and set up her practice here in Greensboro. You know, I've read, and it's kind of off, um, a little bit off topic, but I've read, you know, describe, and as I'm going somewhere, describe her physical appearance, how mm. she looked. Uh, she was very striking. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was very beautiful. She was uh, light-skinned. Mm-hmm. Her um, Both of her parents were biracial. She had two white grandparents, one on either side. And so uh, she encountered lots of issues with colorism in her career, particularly. Actually, they really came out when she was at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she was known for her fashion sense. Mm-hmm. Um, she loved clothes in her archives at in her papers at UNCG. There are receipts of dresses from Lord and Taylor and these, you know, um, upscale department stores in New York. Uh, and later in her career, she became known for her wigs. Okay, I believe it was the one of the Greensboro papers called her "Easily the Champion Wig Wearer." Wow. So, but, but she was she was quite beautiful. Yeah, you touched on a point where I think I read um, in preparing when I was speaking to your class that she was fair skinned and so she was more readily or more easily accepted into white spaces. Mm-hmm. But she had a law school friend who was a dark skinned African American male who wasn't, but she would intentionally or purposefully drag him to the parties too. Oh yes, uh, just say if you're going to accept me, you have to accept him. His name was Herman Taylor. Uh, he ended up going on and uh, he worked with Thurgood Marshall mm. in AACP. Uh, that was his post-Columbia experience. But yeah, she would, uh, he was darker skinned. He was from Virginia and she confronted her white friends okay. and said, you know, he's black, I'm black. Gotcha. So you're going to have to accept both of us as you know, as black, because that's what we are. And I'm never going to deny this. And invite, you invite me, then, you know, you invite him. And that, and that was not necessarily an easy thing to do. 
so she's a trial attorney and she's dressing, has these nice wigs, these nice clothes. So I'm assuming she's doing well or fairly well in her practice. Uh, but when she came here um, to Greensboro as a trial attorney, what made the lawyer, Elrita Alexander, so impactful? What, what are some things that, uh, that stand out about her as an attorney here? Uh, in the book, I talk about what I call her performance activism. She was very gutsy in that she would sit in segregated sections of the courtroom and the presiding judge would have to say, no, you, <laughs> no, you have to come and, and try the case from, you know, from mm -hmm. over here. And she'd say, no, I'm following the rule of law. I'm going to sit where my people sit. Mm -hmm. uh, she would also do things like in front of white male judges and attorneys say, you know, I'm going to go see what the difference is between this white water and this colored water is and drink from the white water fountain. Man. <laughs> uh, nobody stopped her. <laughs> what, I, I, would, I can imagine what kind of look she got doing that. Exactly. But she would make these uh, performances mm -hmm. out of calling out the hypocrisy of segregation and so that definitely um that definitely attracted a lot of attention she said that on you know some days she would um you know dress in her finest and sit in the segregated section she would uh, send cars for her clients mm. uh, particularly her lower income clients so they felt like they were arriving to court with mm -hmm. some sort of you know in style but with also with some sort of power Mm. And you know, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, that, that's it. You know, you you you're touching on some things just from all these folks I've been dealing with. There's different types of activism. Right. Not everyone was marching in the street or participating in core, which was not not a bad thing, but some had other ways. Some had to kind of be in the room to help change, help influence decision makers. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that term that you came up, uh, performance activism. You know, she did hers in the courtroom, um, uh, which is quite notable. Um, so she's a trial attorney here, and she, um, uh, I read where she took on a, uh, a white client. Or... She took on, she took, she had a pretty mixed clientele. Mm -hmm. uh, she took on, this was around 1968, okay. where she very controversially defended members of the Ku Klux Klan. That's okay. That's what I did. Right. Um, like their money is green or their money's money is green. green. Yeah. Um, which isn't the most activist statement, <laughs> but uh, she was also at that point, very recently divorced and uh, her son had recently been diagnosed with schizophrenia. So she was also, when she took those cases, I think practically she was a mom who needed to make sure that she had a stable income for her, for her son who needed help. Um, also, she said she took it as an opportunity to convert um, clan members to the other side. So she said in her oral histories that uh, she takes credit for many clan members drifting away from, from the clan. So why would they go to her? Is she the only one that would take the case? Or what would be the reason for a Klan member to go to this African-American uh, lawyer? Mainly so nobody would suspect them of being Klan members. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> uh, mainly just for appearances, you know, 
uh, if we hire this obviously, um, obviously brilliant attorney with a great reputation who also happens to be a black woman, then you know maybe we won't get pegged as as clan members by the court. There's such thing as what they call interest convergence. Yes. Okay. And uh, so now here she she joins a unique law firm in the South, uh, mm-hmm. Austin, Alexander, Pell and Pell. Mm-hmm. Guys, Austin, is that where she gets the, the new last name? No, that's not. That is um, uh, uh, Ralston. Her, 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 yeah, that's her, oh, I'm sorry. That comes later. So, okay. yeah, that came, um, that law firm came about. They formed in 1966. Okay. There is, um, they were the first integrated law firm in the South. In the entire uh, there, South. Okay. There are two law firms that claim that title. Um, one was um, Austin Alexander Pell and Pell in 1966, but then you had in 1968 you had uh, Ferguson Chambers and Stein in Charlotte with um, you know Julius Chambers mm. uh, famously. Um, but as far as I know, they didn't form until 1968. Okay. Well, Greensboro's just been like a centerpiece for a lot of firsts when it comes to race relations. You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, I'm learning as I talk to you. Well, you know, I want to uh, stick a break in right here. Okay. And uh, when we come back, I'd like for you to tell our uh, listeners about um, her venture into politics and the party that she ran under, and uh, which I find interesting. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about that when she ran and. I believe it was 1968. So we're here with Dr. Virginia Summy, um, and we're on our edition of History Notes, and we're talking about Judge Errol Rita Alexander Ralston, and we'll come back and learn more right after this. You've been listening to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. To learn more about this podcast and many more, visit our website at www.greensborohistory.org. Now let's listen in to History Notes. Welcome back to History Notes. I'm Rodney Dawson, Curator of Education at the Greensboro History Museum. And we've been discussing the life and the uh, career and the uh, upcoming book, uh, biography on Judge L. Reader Alexander. And we're joined here by Dr. Virginia Summy, um, uh, faculty member at UNC Greensboro, um, and just started from a thesis when you were in school in Montana. Mm-hmm. And it's now developing into a book, and you're sharing some wonderful information about uh, the judge's life and career. And we're pleased to have you here. Before we left, we were talking about her time. We briefly touched on uh, her experience with the uh, integrated law firm of Austin Alexander Pell and Pell. Is there anything else you want to talk about um, about her time when she was working with that firm? And we we talked. You did tell us it was the first. We believe it was the first. It was another one in Charlotte in '68, but in 1966, this was the first. As yes, uh, apparently Time Magazine did try and reach out to them and, and interview them about being the first, but uh, she said that they didn't do it for you know particularly. They didn't they didn't form the law firm for political reasons as much as they did. They were just a good mix of attorneys. Um, the Pell's, uh, uh, Jim and Jerry Pell, uh, their mother Sally Pell was Judge Alexander's best friend. Oh wow. And so they, uh, so they had, you know, a history together. Anyone still around? Um, Jerry Pell is, as 
far as I know, still alive. Okay. Um, it's been a few years since I've talked to him, but um, a lot of information on the 1960s and her career in the in the 60s and 70s, I, I got from him. He was wonderful. How long have you been working on the book? Well, I started the first paper. I started um, I'm trying to think. I started my master's degree in 2010. So it's been mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been nine uh, nine or ten years of research, mm-hmm. and um, I've had the book contract with the University of Georgia Press for a year. Okay, so what's been harder, the dissertation or this book? Uh, I'd say probably the dissertation, just because I was you know starting from not entirely from scratch, but you know, that's when I was still doing heavy research. Okay. Um, I haven't had to do for the book. Uh, for the book, it's been a lot of cut out, cut this out, cut this out, cut this out. <laughs> the book is going to end up being shorter than the dissertation. Um, and so just writing for different audiences. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, have a name that you can release or are you holding back on that yet? Oh, uh, I will let you know as soon as we have come to a consensus. On the okay. line. <laughs> Well, you hold your ground. You hold your ground. Okay. <laughs> not been um, official agreement on what the title should be. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm looking forward to it. You be sure you let us know. I'm going to ask you about the book later on, too. Uh, but we're going back to Judge Alexander. Um, and, you know, she jumped into politics somewhat. Mm-hmm. She did a little bit. She volunteered on that campaign. Uh, and the, the gentleman told her, yeah, you should be a lawyer. So we're thankful for that. But this may be surprising to some. It was to me. Um, but in 1968, uh, Alexander became the first black judge elected uh, in our state and the first black woman to become an elected district court judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, another first. However, uh, when she ran, she ran as a Republican and not a Democrat. So those that follow politics today and uh, maybe not understanding uh, African-Americans and their role in politics pre uh, the Civil Rights Act, that's that's a surprise. That's that's kind of astounding. Why did she run as a Republican and not a Democrat? I think it's I mean it was a very transitional time in politics. So you had had the 64 Civil Rights Act, which did and the um the candidacy of Barry Goldwater, mm-hmm. which drove a lot of conservative Democrats to the Republican Party, particularly in the South, and drove a lot of African-Americans from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. It's what uh, political historians Merle Black and Earl Black call you, the great white switch. Mm. Um, But it was a slow switch. It didn't happen because of one piece of legislature or, you know, one candidate. So it it was quite slow and you had particularly in the South, you had a lot of people who were not convinced that the Republican Party should be their new home. Uh, Jesse Helms himself did not did not switch to the Republican Party until 1970. Mm-hmm. So in 1968, you know, Jesse Helms was still a Democrat. Um, and so you still had, a, and you had a lot of social conservatives who, you know, re, had remained in the Democratic Party, you know, until the 1970s. So there was also particularly amongst 
uh, some African Americans who embraced that concept of uh, respectability, of socially responsible individualism, that there was going to be some good things coming potentially from the Nixon administration, particularly with his black cabinet. Mm. And so you had people even here in Guilford County, um, uh, Robert Brown, I believe at a high point was a part of the Nixon administration, an African-American man at a high point who was in the Nixon administration. And so you had some, um, you know, you had some promise at the, in 1968, of course that didn't really come to fruition, but um, also, Alexander was very, she was shrewd. She was smart. She, I think she also sensed the political winds changing. Mm. She knew that she could get the black vote in Guilford County. I think becoming a Republican, she saw as a good way to also get the, ensure the white vote. It was, um, at the time you voted for your top choices mm -hmm. as far as the judgeship goes and so she came in third oh third out of nine or something mm -hmm. like that and so it also you know ended up being a good way to you know get white votes as well um and so i think there was some strategy to it she okay. also said that she felt that integration was the only way for black people to succeed and that's echoed in other books about black Republicans at the time. There was a lot of interest in making sure that the Republican party did not become an all white party. Okay. Uh, I think we heard that notion again in 2008. <laughs> yeah. uh, but she continued to win. She won in 72, 76, and then in 1980. Yeah, she did. Uh, she never had any problems winning in Guilford County. Right. So what would you say, uh, as a judge, what would you say is the most notable accomplishment or implementation orchestrated by Judge Alexander? As a judge, she was probably most proud of her Judgment Day program, which was a forerunner to juvenile deferred sentencing. Uh, basically, and, and she saw the writing on the walls when she established it in 1968, that there was already increasing rates of incarceration of young black men. Mm. The program itself was not specifically for young black men, but it was for uh, young, it was for juveniles who had committed some sort of offense, um, be it a DWI or speeding or, or, or something, you know, theft. And she would defer their sentence until they completed a certain goals, a certain tasks, typically community service type, type tasks that they had to perform. And then they had to give a report to churches and community groups and to her about the dangers of their offense, what they plan to do to rehabilitate themselves. And if they met you know, certain criteria, then the offense was erased from their record. Um, so she was very proud of this program. Um, it was the only one like it, uh, definitely in North Carolina at the time. And so it comes under attack later as um, we see variations in judicial discretion, um, particularly, um, you know, prosecutors didn't like it um, because, you know, the judge was determining 
you know, the synods are, are erasing um, prosecutions. And so uh, I think it was eventually discontinued in 1980. Mm. Uh, but she was very proud of it. And she would say that a lot of young people who eventually went on to become doctors and lawyers and uh, PhDs that went through that program were able to achieve good things because somebody gave them another chance. Okay. And so um, uh, she has that program that kind of launches her, uh, you know, uh, gives her, I guess, a certain confidence that she can influence or implement some type of change. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but in an attempt to become the chief justice um, for the state of North Carolina, uh, Judge Alexander was defeated. Uh, I'm not sure which year she ran, but she was defeated by, uh, I think, he, was it Williamston? He was originally from Williamston. He was from Williamston, yes. North Carolina. But the, the person that defeated her uh, was a fire extinguisher, a fire extinguisher salesman uh, with no college degree. Correct. Um, so I guess you probably can answer this question in one word. But why do you think, why do you believe she lost and did any changes come of that loss? She lost because of racism and sexism. I mean, that's that's pretty much. Oh, you can answer it in two words. <laughs> yes. So, uh, she. I mean, because she, you know she's a fairly well-known judge, known for breaking barriers, and uh, and like I said, she lost to a man who didn't even have a college degree. And this was in 1974, as I'm looking at my notes. Correct. Yeah, 1974. Mm -hmm. Um, when she, uh, when she filed to run in the Republican primary, she was the only candidate. He filed after her. Uh, the Democratic candidate was Justice Susie Sharp, who was the first woman on the North Carolina Supreme Court. Who was she was already an associate justice on the on the North Carolina court. So if she had, if Alexander had run as a Democrat, she it would have been close to impossible to have gotten the nomination over a sitting Supreme Court justice. Okay. Uh, but she ended up running against this man, James Newcomb, who was a fire extinguisher salesman. And the Republican Party essentially just took, to put it nicely, a hands-off approach. They didn't really help either candidate. Um. I guess there was a thought that she would win. I mean, obviously, you know, who's going to vote for a fire extinguisher salesman over a Columbia educated judge. Uh, but uh, Newcomb ended up, Newcomb ended up winning quite decisively. Hmm. Um, there was a lot, there were several articles about it. I believe one article I, I believe it was in the Salisbury Post that said, you know, her loss can only be attributed to racism, sexism, or gross ignorance. Wow. Okay, and that was James Newcomb. Who James Newcomb the, it, it was the was the was the uh, fire extinguisher salesman. Yes. And that, I'm sure that had to be, uh, if not shocking, but somewhat of a setback for her. She never talked about it, or she okay. rarely talked about it. Uh, her one of her later law partners, uh, Donald Speckard, said that he believed it was a very difficult time for her. There had been few barriers that she had not been able to overcome, mm -hmm. and this was the first time that uh, she suffered, you know, a, a real defeat. 
Uh, granted, if it, she had won the Republican nomination and had had an election against Susie Sharp, it would have been very difficult to have won um, just because it was a, you know, a su sitting Supreme Court uh, justice. But it would have made it a historic woman v. woman contest. Um, fortunately, the um, Republican Party continued to not support James Newcomb in the in the general. Uh, Susie Sharp won, making her the first female Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, and uh, she pushed for a constitutional amendment saying that judges had to have a law degree. And that was eventually passed by voters, I believe in 1980. And uh, and I'm looking, uh, I think it was Justice Fry who became the first African-American. Correct, uh, yes. Mm -hmm. Chief Correct. Justice for the state of North Carolina. Correct. Uh, and you talked about, she's going through difficult times. She didn't talk about it much, but in your research, have you found anyone that she could lean on, anyone that would serve as a role model or mentor uh, for her to help guide her through these times? The most important person in her life was her father, hmm. um, undoubtedly, hands down. Uh, she idolized her father. Uh, he passed in 1968. Um, he did not live to see her become an elected district court judge, um, but he was the guiding influence through her life. What she was his, afterwards, name? his name was J.C. Melton. Okay. And uh, he, he came to Greensboro. He was a minister of at the United Institutional Baptist Church, which is um, you know, right on East Market. Okay. Um, outside of that, uh, she doesn't talk a whole lot about other people. She talks about her friendship with Sally Pell, but she also said that she was kind of lonely a lot of the time. Uh, she, you know, she had a, to put it mildly, a fairly disastrous first marriage. And so she said, you know, she, I think had reached a certain level of success, particularly as a black woman where, you know, she had a, a hard time relating to other black women but also you know to white people as well so she she definitely experienced some loneliness mm -hmm. in her position would you say that was one of the sacrifices she made for her professional success was just personal relationship i would say so yeah that and and, and the situation with her son when she was not when she was not working she was focused on on her son gerardo uh, making sure he got into the best boarding schools, um, received the best care for his mental illness that he possibly could. Mm -hmm. So between yeah, her career and her and her son or her life, essentially wow. for a long time. So it sounds like, have you immersed yourself in her life? Uh <laughs> <laughs> Somewhat. <laughs> Somewhat, yeah, definitely. Um, when you spend, you know, nine, almost 10 years researching a person, you, you feel like you know them. Uh, there were, she left behind over 200 pages of oral history um, that were never, that had, that were never published. Uh, she had intended to write an autobiography and um, that never came to fruition. So 
going through her oral histories it was just she opened up her world um particularly to me as you know her biographer and um and was just I was amazed at how open she was Mm -hmm. about the personal about the personal in her life um about her first marriage about her son about these you know really difficult things but one thing after years of research that you get to know about a person is that when something really truly wounded her she didn't talk about it Mm. so she didn't talk much about her father's death in 68 she didn't talk much about the 74 loss she talked extensively about her marriage Mm. and domestic turmoil but the things that she you know the things that truly wounded her she she didn't talk about kept them close to the vest when did she pass 98 1998 march of 1998 have you been able to with all that you've learned um i would imagine it would be difficult not to but do you utilize anything that you've learned um as content that you teach in your class or also i would ask has it changed you as an instructor maybe some techniques or some some purpose you're trying to get, to get out. How has it changed you as an instructor professionally and have, do you use what, you, what you've learned uh, to empower your students? I definitely use her in any time I teach North Carolina history, by Greensboro class, women's history. Uh, I, I definitely use her um, because she should be recognized for all of her accomplishments, not just her firsts, Um, Her firsts make her notable, but it was the way she went about all of these things that make her worth writing a whole book about. Hmm. And so, particularly in the Greensboro class, I spend at least two weeks on civil rights. And a lot, and in my women's history courses, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about, you know, the women who who worked behind the scenes of the civil rights movement, the Ella Bakers, the Fannie Lou Hamers, um, and even the Elrita Alexanders who were there, you know, doing work that a lot of the, the male charismatic leaders, you know, got a lot of the credit for. So we spend a lot of time talking about the Bennett Bells mm-hmm. in, in my class. Um, and about Judge Alexander, because she was one of these, these women who had a different approach. But as we learn, even from male charismatic leaders in the civil rights movement, there still wasn't one approach to activism. You know, and I, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, and I can tell you, uh, I'll tell you off mic about a couple of things that I think might please you. But uh, we don't have a name for the book yet. We're going to have to wrestle with, with Georgia Press on that. <laughs> <laughs> But we do think it's coming out in 2021. Hopefully next fall. Yeah, uh, COVID has thrown, you know, delays into everything. Um, you know, I have I have a, a daughter, one on the way. So, um, well, by the time this comes out, he will be here. But um, yeah, so it's been a, a juggling game this year between, you know, working and teaching and, and kids and, um, but yeah, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully next fall. 
Well, I'm sure it'll be a treasure and we'll, we'll be sure and get a copy. Uh, and I was going to ask you what's next, but you answered that question. That baby's next. <laughs> I'm um, hoping to take January off. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm having a kid in two weeks. And so, uh, yeah, it's just going to be um, hopefully uh, taking a little bit of time off. Also getting started on some new research. Okay. I'm excited about. So it'll well, be interesting and a little sad to write about something other than judge alexander i understand that's been your that's been your baby now you got a new baby um or one of your babies but yeah. thank you for joining us dr Sumney. i really appreciate you um educating myself and i'm uh, sure it's going to educate some of our listeners we have a lot a large um educational audience but uh as we've grown history notes we come to find a lot of lifelong learners uh just tune in just people interested in learning about greensboro Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, and uh, so we've been joined by uh, Dr. Virginia Summy, faculty fellow at UNC Greensboro. And I've been your host for this episode of History Notes here on the Greensboro History Museum. It's brought to you by the Educational Department. Uh, if you want to check out this podcast, you can go on greensborohistory.org. That's our museum uh, website. You can go to Discover and Learn and then select Podcasts. You can also check it out on Spotify, Acast, or even pressplaygso.com. So thank you again. This has been History Notes. You've been listening to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. Just as you visited for this podcast, continue to go to www.greensborohistory.org and select the Discover and Learn tab to listen again or learn more about many other subjects. We also invite you to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And please stop by the museum when you can. We're located at 130 Summit Avenue, Greensboro. Hours vary, so visit our website or call 336-373-2043 for details. Once again, thank you, and keep tuning in to History Notes.